This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Back to the podcast, IC Rounds. We've been talking uh, recently about pancreatitis, severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis. And the previous episodes have talked about how do we make the diagnosis of pancreatitis and, and what causes it, what patient populations are predisposed. The second podcast will focus a little bit more on some of the physiological support of fluid resuscitation and nutrition. And in this episode, I want to start out by looking at the uh, issues of infection. Should we start the patient on antibiotics, antibiotic prophylaxis? When and how do we make the diagnosis of either pancreatic necrosis or infection of the pancreas? Since depending on some series, infections uh, of the pancreas uh, or of the necrotic pancreas are responsible for 80% of the deaths, it's not an unreasonable consideration to ask oneself, would the administration of antibiotics to this patient perhaps bend that curve, perhaps improve survival or reduce the morbidity and mortality? Groups of patients that are at high risk for development of infection are those who have more than 30% of the gland that's necrotic. Now, this is evident on CAT scanning. We haven't really gone into this much, and we plan on going to this a little bit later. But if the patient has more than 30% necrosis, pancreatic infection is seen in about 30 to 40% of these patients. How the pancreas gets infected uh, is theorized that it's bacterial translocation from the colon being the most likely cause. Other sources that can infect the pancreas, some feel, is, is through either direct spread or people, uh, organisms can gain access to the pancreas, um, particularly necrotic debris, through hematogenous dissemination from infected central venous catheters. Another reason to stand on that chair via the biliary tree or ascending from the duodenum into the pancreatic duct. The key here is that the source of the bacteria comes typically from another site, a central venous catheter that perhaps is neglected or thought not to be a threat. A patient might benefit from peripheral access, but, you know, he's getting all these drips and uh, he's getting multiple this and that, and so let's keep the central venous catheter in. And that results in the patient getting an infection of the pancreas. Uh, now, be mindful that whenever we have dead tissue in the body, this is a setup for infection. So constantly be surveilling. Does the patient need the central venous catheter? Do we need this, that, or the other thing? You can certainly therefore see that since the pancreas is normally sterile and that organisms and pathogens gain access to the pancreas through all these variety of routes, it's not totally unreasonable for somebody to consider maybe we can give this person some prophylactic antibiotics and prevent these infections from developing at all. And this has been the source of tremendous amount of, of, of research and publication on this. I'm going to try to provide you with the references the best that I can. I'm going to probably slaughter some names and I may actually get some bibliographical data incorrect. I apologize in advance. But when you go back and you look at the literature, this is an infection that has changed. It has evolved. Um, I frequently will hear people say, well, in the day, you know, particularly in regards to cardiac surgery, we did X, Y, and Z, and today these guys um, are, are, are not as good as we were because of, of these results. Well, 
it's a different patient population now than it was then because of stents and invasive uh, invasive cardiology. Um, you're comparing two different sets of patient populations. Well, the same thing is true here when we think about pancreatic infections and pancreatic necrosis. Pancreatic infections 20 years ago were typically monomicrobial. That means it was typically a solitary type of infection or organism. It was usually a gram-negative organism. And the trials in the 70s used antibiotics that usually did not penetrate the pancreatic tissue well or did not really cover infectious pathogens. Things are much different nowadays. We're dealing with polymicrobial infections. There's an increased risk of of, uh, gram-positive infections, and we have much better antibiotics. So when you look at a trial that was done, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's certainly not applicable to 2010. Now, over the past 20 years, many surgeons have recommended the use of imipenem for prophylaxis. And this was recommended on uh, the trial by uh, Petrozoli. I know I'm going to kill that name. It's spelled P-E-D-E-R-L-O-Z-I. And for those of you who want to look it up, the actual um, uh, bibliographical reference is Petrozia A-L, I spelled that last name, P-E-D-E-R-Z-O-L-I. The name of the paper is a randomized multi-centered clinical trial of antibiotic prophylaxis of septic complications and acute necrotizing pancreatitis with imipenem. This appeared in the the, uh, journal uh, SGO, Surgical Gynecology and Obstetrics. This is now known as the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. It's published in 1993, volume 176, pages 480 and 483. What that trial found was that secondary rate of pancreatic <coughs> infections decreased from 30% in the control group to 12% in the imipenem group. Um, the p-value was not statistically significant. It was only at 0.10. There were three deaths in each group, and there were no beneficial effects uh, on the uh, outcomes of organ failure, mortality, or the avoidance of surgery. The next paper I want to talk about is SANO, S-A-I-N-I-O. The title of that paper was Early Antibiotic Treatment and Acute Necrotizing Pancreatitis. appeared in Lancet, and now we're in 1995, volume 346, pages 663 and 667. Now, this group of investigators used cefuroxime, and they used 4 to 5 grams per day versus placebo in 60 young people uh, who had alcoholic pancreatitis. The finding that infectious complications were more common in the non-antibiotic group, 1.8 infections per patient versus 1.0 per patient uh, in the um, antibiotic group. Again, not statistically significant p-value of 0.10. The mortality rate uh, was um, significant, 7 in the uh, non-treated group and 1 in the antibiotic treatment group, and that was statistically significant at a p-value of 0.03. Some people have looked at uh, decontaminating the bowel. We said, what is the source of these uh, bacteria that go to infect the pancreas? Maybe bacterial translocation. Therefore, if I try to sterilize the bowel or decontaminate the bowel, maybe I could decrease the likelihood of causing a secondary infection to the uh, necrotic pancreas. To this end, Luton and colleagues in Annals of Surgery, 1995, volume 222, pages 57 to 65, in a paper entitled Controlled Clinical Trial of selective decontamination for the treatment of severe acute pancreatitis. 
they did a trial of selective decontamination in 50 patients with selective uh, uh, bowel decontamination versus 52 controls. Now, they used oral and rectal uh, colimycin, uh, amphotericin, and norfloxacin. And they also gave a short period of cefotoxime. Uh, there were 18 deaths in the control group, that's 35%, and 11 deaths in the selective bowel decontamination group, a rate of 22%. Uh, this was statistically significant, a p-value of 0.048. Barely got under that wire um, uh, for statistical significance. And these studies go on and on and on, non-randomized retrospective reviews and so forth. In 2004, there was a double-blind randomized control trial on the use of prophylactic antibiotics in acute pancreatitis. And this was stopped after an interim analysis. What they did in this study was they uh, gave patients IV Cipro and Flagyl, Ciprofloxacin and Metronidazole. Uh, and they compared this with placebo at 114 patients. Now, some or 12% of the patients in the ciproflagyl uh, group develop uh, pancreatic infections versus 9% in the placebo patients. The mortality between these groups was no different. Now, we said that 20 years ago, we were treating mostly monocrobial uh, or single organism type infections, and it was usually gram-negatives. Well, things have changed. There are several reports showing that the microbiology of these infections have changed dramatically over the last 20 years. These infections are more associated with fungal species and also uh, an increased rate of resistant organisms. Since we have the combination of fungal infections as well as resistant organisms, this makes us have to step back and ask ourselves, is prophylaxis potentially harmful? Some might ask, what would make you draw that conclusion? Well, we know that when we treat something partially or we expose a patient to an antibiotic that they don't necessarily need, that this creates resistance. The bacteria begin to outthink the antibiotics. They figure out ways to, to chemically get around the, the mechanism of killing of the uh, antibiotic, and this creates resistance. And since we have uh, increased resistance as well as increased fungal infections, which are caused basically by changing the flora of the body or causing immunosuppression or, broad spe- or use of broad-spectrum antibiotics, then we have to step back and say maybe prophylaxing these patients isn't a good idea. It's from these kind of, this kind of logic that recent consensus conferences do not recommend the use of antibiotics for antifungal prophylaxis in either IV form or via selective decontamination. So said another way, that the routine use of prophylactic antibiotics in patients with severe acute pancreatitis or severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis is not indicated. Now we want to go back and, and revisit some definitions, particularly how we manage pancreatic necrosis and a pancreatic abscess. A pancreatic necrosis is a diffuse or focal area of non-viable pancreatic parenchyma, often associated with peripancreatic fat necrosis. Necrosis can be either sterile or necrosis can be infected. Pancreatic infection is usually confirmed by fine needle aspiration. And infection occurs in approximately 10% of all the cases of pancreatitis, but infection will occur. That last fact uh, warrants some additional examination, in my opinion. And it is, is that in patients who have pancreatic necrosis, 30 to 70% of the time, the pancreatic t- tissue or the necrotic pancreatic tissue will become infected, between 30 and 70%. That doesn't mean that every time somebody has pancreatic necrosis, that becomes infected. Now, a pancreatic abscess is something different. 
The pancreatic abscess is a circumscribed intradominal collection of pus, usually in close proximity to the pancreatic necrosis and arising as a consequence of the pancreatitis. We know what an abscess is. It's basically a focal issue of pus secondary to the source of infection. Now, when you're taking care of a critically ill patient in intensive care unit, they have severe pancreatitis. It is important to discriminate between somebody who has uh, sterile or infected pancreatic necrosis. This is going to change your management. Suspect pancreatic necrosis in the patient who has clinical signs of sepsis and they have failed to progress or even those who regress after an initial approach, uh, initial period of improvement. Now, these patients should undergo a contrast-enhanced CT scan. Usually, there's a, a, a pancreas protocol that goes with that, or they should get an ultrasound-guided fine needle aspiration unless the CAT scan shows signs of retroperitoneal air, which is usually indicative of gas-producing organisms or infection. Now, the use of the fine needle aspiration, gram stain and culture of the aspirated material has a diagnostic sensitivity of 88% and a specificity of 90%. Fine needle aspiration is indicated only in patients with signs and symptoms of sepsis. If the patient doesn't have signs and symptoms of sepsis and they have some fluid type collection there and you're worried that it could be necrosis or infected necrosis, it's not indicated. Fine needle aspiration is indicated for patients who have signs and symptoms of sepsis. I hope I made myself clear there. Why? Why do we want the patient to have signs and symptoms of sepsis? Well, if I have a fluid collection there and the patient doesn't have signs and symptoms of, of infection, there is a possibility that I can infect that fluid collection by putting a needle in it. And again, that would be a game changer. So without the signs and symptoms of sepsis, we are not putting a needle in that collection. The majority of patients with pancreatic infection will be usually be identified during the second and third weeks. Only about 24% of patients will develop infection in the first week, and 36% and 72% in the second and third weeks, respectively. So again, what these statistics are telling you, that a patient comes in the intensive care unit today, the statistical likelihood of them developing an infection today or this week is unlikely. It's only 24%. What about their second week in the ICU? Again, only third, uh, 36%. But when you get to that third week, that's when 72% of the uh, infections will develop. So really, the first and second week, it's not impossibility. It's still 20, 25, 30%. But where the majority of these patients are going to get infected or is that third week of hospitalization. Therefore, you could take this data and kind of marry that with when you're going to do a fine needle aspirate uh, because, again, the timing of the fine needle aspirate should be based on the clinical assessment and the probability of infection. And this could be based on the time of disease onset and the patient's current clinical condition because we know from the current clinical condition, if they don't have signs and symptoms of sepsis, they're not getting the FNA. Again, we would like to have some sort of blood test that would actually make the diagnosis for us, take the whole element of thinking out of this. Um, they simply don't exist. Uh, there are some studies that look at C-reactive protein uh, and that if somebody has a C-reactive protein 
uh, greater than 120. That's been associated with necrosis. But again, uh, it's, it's not a cause and effect kind of uh, relationship. C-reactive protein can be elevated by uh, almost everything. Another thing that I'm pretty excited about uh, is the idea of, of procalcitonin as a marker of infection. Uh, sometimes patients can develop a SERS or inflammatory response. They can look kind of septic but don't actually have an infection. And um, uh, from what I read, uh, there's been a lot of enthusiasm and use of procalcitonin in Europe. It's now just starting to kind of get its um, some momentum here in the United States. And uh, I think those of us in intensive care units are pretty excited about that. So now we're going to turn our attention towards what are the indications for surgery and when do we uh, decide it's time to take the patient to surgery. Now, we've mentioned that pancreatic necrosis, even when it's sterile, is capable of stimulating a massive surge response, which could really result in a very ill patient and multi-organ dysfunction. Therefore, is it reasonable to consider whether the patient should go to the operating room for surgical debridement uh, of the pancreas, also known as as a necrosectomy, and whether that could improve outcomes? People take operation of the pancreas pretty seriously, and many surgical residents know kind of the uh, little... um, uh, advice that you know you don't mess with the pancreas if you can certainly avoid it. So therefore, any benefit of a necrosectomy certainly must um, um, be greater than the potential risks uh, of operating on a uh, necrotic and friable pancreas. A randomized trial was done to try to delineate what was more beneficial for the patient in regards to going to the operating room early. Uh, versus late, and late in this particular study was defined as greater than 14 days. And this randomized trial demonstrated that going to the operating room late uh, certainly provided a survival advantage, so much so that the study was prematurely terminated because of a significant mortality increase in the early operation group. In fact, those patients who went to the operating room early, which is defined as within the first 14 days, had an increased mortality of 58% in their early operation group versus 27% in the late operation group. And the reference for this paper is Berger, B-E-G-E-R, and colleagues in the Journal of Patobiliary and Pancreatic Surgery, years 2002, volume 9, pages 436 and pages 442. Now, there has been an increasing trend, uh, certainly within the United States, of delaying operation and using fine needle aspiration to identify uh, cases of of infected pancreatic necrosis. The benefits of delayed surgery uh, are multiple and include having more clearly demarcated um, tissue uh, between what's viable and what's non-viable pancreatic tissue. A patient, hopefully, that is better resuscitated, more hemodynamically stable. Therefore, most of the time, early operations really reserved for patients who have uh, documented evidence of infected pancreatic necrosis or those patients who are presenting with surgical complications such as massive bleeding or bowel perforation. Now let's focus on that sterile necrosis. Contrary to the previous beliefs, non-operative management of sterile necrosis is well established and it's pretty well tolerated, even in the face of organ dysfunction as well as clinical deterioration. In some series, sterile necrosis with conservative non-operative management has a published mortality rate of less than 10%. In retrospect, the study, operative debridement of sterile necrosis caused conversion to infected pancreatic necrosis, which is basically a game changer. In addition, in patients who have sterile necrosis and were treated with open debridement, there was a higher mortality rate of 15% versus 39%. 
Now, in contrast, conservative management of sterile pancreatic necrosis was used in 56 of 57 patients uh, with a mortality rate of 3.5%. And this data is from the paper Ashley and colleagues uh, in Annals of Surgery 2002, Volume 234, pages 572 and 579. Now, they noted in the same study that in a few cases, extensive necrosis um, uh, did not improve after a prolonged period of observation, as long as six to eight weeks in this particular trial, and therefore operative bereavement was utilized in those subset of patients. So infected pancreatic necrosis, we agree, requires debridement. There's no consensus about the timing of surgery or the method of surgery. Uh, there are open uh, procedures, and increasingly there's uh, more and more uh, papers on even laparoscopic debridements because it may be difficult to distinguish between viable and non-viable tissue or infected and non-infected uh, tissue, uh, the operative method that one chooses to use must allow for a really continued evacuation of infected debris as well as uh, exudate. Really, perhaps the most popular methods of operative procedures uh, really include a necrosectomy combined with open packing, um, necrosectomy with planned stage laparotomies with repeated lavage, um, necrosectomy followed by closed continuous suction lavage of the retroperitoneum. And finally, as I mentioned, an increasing number of um, minimally invasive or laparoscopic techniques uh, are uh, being developed. Now, talking about open pancreatic debridement, uh, open pancreatic debridement is, is commonly referred to as necrosectomy, and the intent of that operation is to remove devitalized or dead tissue from the pancreas as well as the surrounding areas. Necrosectomy is designed to remove most devitalized tissues without really injuring major blood vessels. Uh, it is typically performed by a gentle finger fracture technique to minimize bleeding and preserve the viable tissues. Uh, formal anatomic pancreatic resections uh, are not typically used in favor of this more kind of finger fracturing uh, technique. Because the pancreatic necrosis and infection may not be defined clearly at the first operation, necrosectomy is often done serially performed procedures so you can go back and make sure that you've done an adequate debridement. Now, the concept of leaving the abdomen open and going back for serial uh, examinations was really uh, popularized by uh, Bradley and colleagues, uh, and it was associated with a dramatic decrease in mortality from 80% prior to this technique of, of leaving the abdomen open and going back for further debridements down to 15% in some series. However, this operation wasn't a freebie. There was significant morbidity uh, associated with this, and it included things like external pancreatic fistula in about 46% of the patients, hernias in about 32% of the patients, and massive venous hemorrhage in 7% of the patients. And that references Bradley in American Journal of Surgery, 1991, volume 161, pages 19 to 24. Now, Sar and colleagues also um, presented a technique in the British Journal of Surgery in 1991, Volume 78. And in their um, series, they performed uh, serial plan stage laparotomies as well as lavage. They did this in 23 uh, patients, and they had a mortality rate of 17% and a morbidity rate of 52% with pancreatic and colonic fistula occurring in 26 and 22% of the patients, respectively. Now, there was a series reported by uh, Fernandez de Castillo and colleagues in Animals of Surgery, 1998, Volume 228. And what they did was a more conservative approach of initial debridement, and they closed over drains. And they had 64 consecutive patients, of whom 36% had infected pancreatic necrosis. So less than half really had infected pancreatic necrosis. Now, surgical management was successful in 69% of the patients with an overall mortality of 62 
percent. Uh, the authors noted significant better outcomes when surgery was delayed beyond the fourth week. And also um, keep in mind that um, this was a, a group where perhaps um, now by using fine needle aspirations, we try to avoid perhaps operating on some of these patients. There's another technique of taking the patients to the operating room and, and doing your debridement and then uh, doing um, large volume closed suction lavage of using 35 or 40 liters of peritoneal lavage fluid or you know the first seven post-operative days uh, using this kind of thing uh, it was successful in 83 percent of the patients with death occurring in nine of 42 percent or a mortality rate of 21 percent so you can see from these different procedures the other thing is but as you look at these different studies that go back to the 80s the 90s the early 2000s uh, our operative indications have changed as we've progressed through time our critical care support has changed the way we manage ventilators, our use of antibiotics, better imaging, better CAT scans, uh, better delineation of what may be uh, viable versus necrotic through um, uh, CT scans. So it's really hard to compare these studies uh, apples to apples when there's such different techniques of such different periods of time. But what you can tell is that when you're doing these operations, they are associated with significant morbidity as well as mortality. Some of the complications you're going to see are fistula formation. That's a common complication of operative treatment. Pancreatic fistula after pancreatitis usually closes spontaneously. Uh, over a sufficiently long period if there's no ductal abnormalities that are prohibiting um, proximal um, drainage. Uh, in a few cases, enteric intestinal drainage or pancreatic resection may be required. Enterocutaneous fistulas are seen commonly when the open packing techniques are used, somewhat less commonly when other managements are employed where you're actually closing the abdomen. Uh, the enterocutaneous fistulas are difficult to manage, associated with significant morbidity, increased length of stay, and even in some situations, mortality is increased. These patients live in our intensive care units for a protracted period of time, typically measured in the several weeks, and therefore they're uh, associated with all of the risk factors and complications of living in intensive care units, such things like ventilator-acquired pneumonia and central venous catheter infections, DVTs, and pulmonary emboli. Uh, so uh, this is a very dangerous disease to have. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, and I'm also the director of the Burn Center there. We hope you find the podcast useful. If you have positive feedback, we certainly encourage you to go to the podcast website on iTunes and leave some positive feedback. We've also developed an application that will allow you to stream all the podcasts on demand. That's also available through iTunes. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.